If you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verses 3 and go through verse 8. Philippians chapter 1. And while you're finding your place, I'll tell you a, a little bit about myself. Um, I am originally from the area, if we have not met, I grew up here, farm Christmas trees and the Lord later called me into the ministry, and then I met my lovely wife, Sarah. I was joking last night and said the Lord must have blinded her for her to, for her to say yes in marrying me. So, uh, so yeah, so we are originally here, uh, moved away about 10 years ago, and, and recently uh, moved back to the area. And we are so thankful to be here uh, in Ash County. We're thankful to be a part of this church and worshiping with you. Again, if you have your Bibles, please stand with me as we read from Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. The Bible says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you dear in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. You may be seated. When we think of a partnership, we normally think of partnering in a business. Uh, we're familiar with partnerships. Uh, we've seen the power of partnerships in the world of business, entertainment, and throughout history. We're reminded of people like Smith and Wesson. In the business world, there was uh, different people like Richard and Maurice McDonald, uh, Bill Gates and Alan, Paul Allen, and the list goes on and on. And if you like ice cream, Ben and Jerry. However, what Paul is speaking about here, when he speaks of a partnership in the gospel, he's speaking of something intimate to the church, something eternal to the church, something of eternal value with eternal benefits. And if we were to sum the, the, the central idea of this text, we could say something like Paul wrote to thank the Philippians for their fellowship in the gospel. We may broaden it a little bit because we see this in the text as well, that Paul wrote to encourage the Philippians. We ought to be thankful for one another as we partner together in the gospel. We ought to encourage one another as we partner in the gospel. I have three different points. We'll start with the first one. In verses 3 through 5, we see that Paul thanked the Philippians for their fellowship in the gospel. Look with me in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, and notice what he says in verse 5, because of or in view of 
your participation or your partnership, your fellowship in the gospel. So why was Paul thanking them? As we read through the letters uh, of different, church, different churches that he wrote to, he was always thanking them. But in particular, in Philippians, it was a very warm letter that he wrote, and he was thanking them for their partnership in the gospel. We see that his prayer was joyful because of their partnership in the gospel. Then we see that he, he thanked them all. There wasn't just a member here of the church or a member here of the church who he thanked for partnering in the gospel, but he saw that the body and, and has taught us by the inspiration of the Spirit that the body is made up of many members and he was thankful for all of them as the church came together and partnered together in the gospel, in the church. He had a joyful remembrance of them. His thankfulness was in view of their koinonia. We'll see that word later in verse 7, of their koinonia in the gospel, their fellowship, their partnership, their participation. I want us to notice three things concerning how they shared in the gospel. First of all, they shared with Paul in his affliction. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you, Philippians, have done well to share with me in my affliction. So they were sharing, they were fellowshipping with him in his affliction. They sent aid to him and therefore shared with him. And I want you to be encouraged, church, because this church is very intentional to share with other believers around the world in their afflictions through prayer through giving, through partnering with other churches. It's not meaningless. It has eternal value because we are sharing with them in their affliction and in the furtherance of the gospel. We see in verse 15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. They not only shared in his affliction, they shared in his preaching. So as Paul was out proclaiming the gospel, he was not alone because they had shared with him. They were a part of what he was doing. When we send funds, for example, overseas, we are sharing with them in persecuted worlds. It's having an impact as they are afflicted. It's having an impact on the world as we share and they preach the gospel there. We see in 
First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. The Philippians, in that text, Paul points out that they were, uh, they were a part of that. And notice, so Paul wouldn't be a burden to the church the Philippians gave. So they partnered there as well. They shared in the preaching of the gospel when they didn't have the means to do so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Beginning in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. We see them here giving again to the church in Corinth. That in a great... Notice the adjectives in the adverbs in this text as Paul uh, writes to them. That in a great ordeal of affliction, speaking of the Philippians, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberty. Do you see that? They, they were in, impoverished. They didn't have the money to give it, but they, they gave it anyway, and it revealed wealth, spiritual wealth within them by doing that. For I testify, verse 3, that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Paul didn't ask them to. Paul didn't come and say, hey, this, this church is in need. Can you please give? No, they gave out of their own desire that the Lord had given them. They wanted to partner in the gospel with Paul. Verse 4, even begging us. The Philippians begged Paul, can we give? Can we do something to help in this ministry? With much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. The Philippians' joy, oh, listen, I'm going to preach to myself just a minute. The Philippians' joy was tied to the progress of the gospel, not physical comfort. The, the believer's joy, mine and your joy, will be tied to the progress of the gospel, not physical comfort or social acceptance. When we don't know what to do, we still know what to do. And that is to partner in the good news of Jesus Christ. And church, I want you to be encouraged because you continue to support missionaries. You continue to support church planters. You continue to support one, of the, one another. And it's not just financial support, it's prayer 
It's love. It's welcoming those who come in. Paul's thankfulness to the believers in Philippi was fettered to the progress of the gospel. Paul's joy, remembrance, and many prayers for them was fettered to their shared progress of the gospel. But notice that Paul not only thanked the Philippians for their fellowship in the gospel, he also encouraged the Philippians in their future partnership in the gospel. Turn with me back to Philippians and notice verse 5. We, we have already uh, seen how he was thankful for them, how he was offering prayer with joy to them. We saw that, that he did this in view of their participation in the gospel. And notice the last clause, from the first day until now. From the first day until now. It is here that Paul really begins to encourage the church. He points out here at the end of verse 5 of their past participation in the gospel. In verse 6, he's going to, to point out their future participation, not only individually but corporately. corporately. In Acts chapter 16, we're not going to turn there, but we remember that Paul and Silas crossed over into Macedonia. We remember that the first convert was a woman by the name of Lydia. Uh, we later immediately, well, let me back up just a minute. After she was converted, what did she do? She invited Paul and Silas into her home. We later see that Paul and Silas went into prison. In the inner prison, the deepest parts of the prison. They were singing hymns and songs to the Lord. And what happened? The jailer came to them and said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul shared the gospel with them. They were converted. They were baptized. They took him home. And what did they do? They ministered to his needs where he had been bruised and beaten. From the beginning, from day one, the church at Philippi was partnering with Paul in the gospel by caring for his physical needs. When Paul spoke of day one, these were the events that he was speaking of. This church had been participating from the founding, and let, let me say something, church. I lived in Ash County when this church was planted. And from the beginning, from the beginning, until now, you have continued to partner in the gospel. Be encouraged by that and continue in that. Notice Paul's confidence in verse 6 that their future participation, it, it, it would continue. It would continue. Verse 6, for I am confident of this very thing. Now, now we know Paul didn't say, well, I think this might happen, or, or if you do this, this will happen, or, or if this goes on over here, this will happen, it might happen, it, it hypothetically will happen, it probably will happen. No, Paul didn't say that. The Scriptures do not say that. What do they say? For I am confident. I'm confident of this very thing that he, who is the he there? It is God. He's not 
them in themselves. It is, it is God doing the work. In justification, it was God who did the work. Later in glorification, when we ascend into heaven, it is God who does the work. Now, there's no way that we can justify ourselves, and there's surely no way that we can glorify ourselves in heaven. And Paul points out here that it is he who does, it is God who does the sanctifying work in our lives. He is constantly drawing us closer to him. He is constantly working. And you may be saying, like I often say, to myself, I feel like I've taken five steps back, but yes, later the Lord's going to take those five forward plus five more, regardless of what goes on, because it is God who does the work in the sanctifi sanctification process. I was thinking of Abraham last week as Paul, or I'm sorry, as Scott was preaching through Genesis, and we saw that that Abraham took his son up there. And, and, and that event, it points to Christ. Yes, we see that, but what else was God doing in that event? He was strengthening Abraham's faith. He was sanctifying Abraham in that. So what happens to us when we face difficulties or don't know if we can trust God in a certain situation because it may be too hard? It is God doing the sanctifying work within our lives. It is He, God, who does it? And just as God began a work in the Philippians, just as they were doing the work of partnering in the gospel, God was going to continue to sanctify them that they would continue in their participation. He who began a good work in you, notice he will perfect it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God, dear brothers and sisters, is going to complete a work in you and me now. He, he's not only going to complete it, he's going to fully complete it. Fully complete it. One of my favorite passages is Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes all things, not some things, not a thing here and there. He causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Notice, notice there's a limitation there. It's for those who, who love God. It's, it's those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to become formed into the image of Christ. The sanctifying process is going to be perfected in my life in your life it was part of god's plan it, it was a predetermined plan it will come to pass conform to the image of who of his son so that we would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and these whom he predestined he also called and these whom he called he also what justified and these whom he justified he will also glorify i don't know what you're going through now but there is hope in christ and his sanctifying work in your life you may be going through something difficult and you can't answer god why is this going on in my life well god is going to use it to conform you and make him more, make you more like jesus and that is our hope as believers, it's not only the return, 
It's the work that's going on in our lives now. Six, seven years ago, Sarah and I lived in, in Wake Forest, and I was studying at Southeastern. And we believed that the Lord was moving us to Hendersonville, and I was going to finish at Fruitland Baptist Bible College. Well, I had just finished a, uh, a theology class, so I thought that I knew everything, even though I got a 60 on my paper. And that's true. I still thought that I knew everything, but I, I didn't know it. I had all my, my soteriology figured out. I, have, I had all my ecclesiology and eschatology. I had it all ironed out, figured out. And I thought, I'm going to go to Hendersonville, and I'm going to show what, these people what they don't know because I know it all. And that was a hard move, especially for my wife. But something happened there. The Lord humbled me. He humbled me. And when things are difficult, God is using those to humble us. And we'll later see this in chapter 2 where Paul said, Let this mind of Christ be also in you, who humbled himself by taking on the by, become, by, by taking on man. I think the lyrics to the song, Christ is mine forevermore, fits well here. Mine are days that God has numbered. I was made to walk with him. Dear Christian, you were made to walk with him. And I see my heart in it. Yet I look for worldly treasures and forsake the king of kings. But mine is hope and my redeemer. Though I fall, his love is sure. For Christ has paid forever failing. I am his forevermore. Mine are tears in times of sorrow, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley we must travel, where I see no earthly good, but mine is peace that flows from heaven and the strength in times of need. I know my pain will not be wasted. Why? Because Christ completes his work in me. Paul encouraged the Philippians in their participation in the future in their final sanctification and glorification in the day of Christ Jesus. But we not only see Paul's encouragement in this passage, we also see Paul, excuse me, was affectionate, excuse me, Paul was affectionate because of their partnership in the gospel. Paul was affectionate for them because of their partnership in the gospel. Look with me in verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all 
are partakers of grace. The word there, uh, partakers, it has the root of koinonia again. So we see that fellowship. You are all fellowshippers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now we see, beginning in verse 7, for it is only right. It is only appropriate is what Paul is saying. It, it expresses a moral and spiritual rightness there. Uh, not that which is expected, but that which is required before God and man. Why is it required before God and man? Well, we see that later in verse 7. He says, since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me. That's why it was right. Now, we also see the word feel he uses there in verse 7, for it is only right for me to feel this way. And feel refers to an act of mental disposition. It's sometimes translated to think or to have this mind in Christ. And he pointed out in verse 7 that the Philippians were in his heart. I have you in my heart. It means more in the Greek. The heart, we know, is the seat of the personality with its mind, feeling, and will. Paul was not simply holding them dear. His mind and his will was ever concerned about them. But again, why? Well, verse 7 tells us because in Paul's imprisonment, his defense and confirmation of the gospel, they were partakers, fellow partakers in the gospel, which points us back to verse 4. They were participating with him in the gospel. But notice they were fellow sharers in this grace. They were partakers of grace with Paul in that they, just as he, received the grace of the Lord Jesus. We are fellow partakers in the grace of God because we have received as believers the grace of God. We have been saved. We have been regenerated because of his grace. And the question that we must ask ourselves is, why me? Why me? Why, why would God save a wretch like me? And I can't answer that. All I know is that he is so gracious, but we are fellow partakers. Also, they were fellow sharers because they received benefits by him and his ministry. They were partakers of the grace of God through the hands of Paul. And while Paul was in prison, the Philippian church stood by him and did what they could do to alleviate his suffering and his pain. Do you see how they were fellow partakers there that they were sharing together? They received good from Paul and Paul received good from them. But thinking about Paul, Matthew Henry rightly said, nothing brings a minister of the gospel more comfort than when those whom he serves partners with him. 
It is a far greater comfort than words can describe. Matthew Henry rightly said, fellow sufferers should be dear to one another. Those who have ventured and suffered in the, in the same cause of God and religion should for that reason love one another dearly. One of the things that, uh, that I was taught not to do in preaching was to point people out. Brother, can I encourage you? Twelve years ago, your pastor and I would meet every Monday morning and pray together. We were fellowshipping in the gospel. And, and, and here we are 12 years later, able to fellowship in the gospel again. And that's what God calls us to with one another. And this is why Paul said in verse 8, For God is my witness how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul called on God as his witness. There was no greater witness for Paul to call on than God himself. The Philippians would have known the seriousness of Paul's statement when he said, God is my witness. How I long for you with the affection of Christ. Paul was saying there are two people who know about my deep affection for you, God and me. And it was not just the feeling of which Paul had for them. It was his longing for them that revealed his holy affection for them. And here's what I think robs us of our affection for the Lord and one another. It is when we take our eyes off of Christ, off of his gospel, the furtherance of his fame throughout the world, when we become more focused on tertiary issues rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ. We lose our affection of Christ and we lose our affection for one another. And that's what happened to me as I became more focused on um, tertiary issues rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ, rather than Christ himself. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters. It's not just here in this gathering or in this congregation where we lock arms with one another. We lock arms with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. We lock arms with Presbyterians. I heard one brother of mine said, heaven will be sprinkled with Presbyterians and immersed with Baptists. If you're Presbyterian, that's only a joke. I don't mean that. But still, nevertheless, we can lock arms with one another. And another thing, church, you ought to be encouraged with is, from what I understand, you've locked arms with the Methodist church in the community. And even though you differ difference on certain theological things, we agree on those things that are major. And we can lock arms with them for the gospel. Some of my dearest friends, uh, my dearest brother in Raleigh, we, we disagree on certain things concerning soteriology. He can be wrong if he wants to. That's all right. And some of you may disagree with me and, and, and not have the correct view of eschatology, but that's okay. We can still lock arms because we agree on the gospel and that there is a dying and lost world who needs the hope 
of Jesus Christ. And there is a promise that those whom we take the gospel to will hear and many will be saved. But we not only see how they shared and we, we not only hear this warning to ourselves. and Paul not only thanked them but later throughout the letter he gave them some warnings. He gave them some warnings. And I, I want to point out three very quickly that I think we need to take to heart. The first warning he gave them was pride. We see this in chapter 2. Verse 1, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And he used Jesus as an example. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Have you ever thought about the humility of Christ, what he did, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who took on the form of a man? And, and he not only humbled himself to take it on the form of a man, he humbled himself to being put on a Roman cross and falsely accused as a criminal for you and me. And that's the mind that we are supposed to have. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's the mind that we have. So we are to be warned of our own pride, like the church at Corinth. We are to beware of disunity. Look with me in, in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 1. Therefore, beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, if I may, I need to ask some grace from you all because I meant to look up these names and how they're pronounced, and I didn't do it. So I'm going to give my best Western North Carolina shot at it, okay? <laughs> I urge Udia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. So we, we see here that, that there was some disunity in the church. And Paul or, urged the whole church to come together and, and seek unity because when there's disunity, 
We can't partner in fellowship in the furtherance of the gospel when there's disunity. So he warned them of disunity. It's amazing how things can so quickly spiral out of control. It's so amazing when a friend can become an enemy. And notice the third one was false teaching in chapter 3. And Paul took this very serious. Notice uh, what he said concerning the false teachers. I'm in the wrong book. Beware of the dogs. I don't think Paul was talking about our indoor pets, do you? And in, in fact, from what I understand, in that context, it's how we would look at the rats. Beware of the rats. Take false doctrine very seriously. Take false teaching very seriously. And get rid of it. Avoid it. Because, as the church says, bad theology hurts people. Bad theology hurts people. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a partner is a person with a joint share in something or who takes part with another in doing something. While there have been great partnerships throughout history, there is no greater partnership than us locking arms to further the gospel. And again, as we said before, the believer's joy ought be tied to the progress of the gospel and not physical comfort or social acceptance. Brothers and sisters, I'm thankful for you, and we ought to be thankful for one another and what God is doing in and through this congregation. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we trust that you will take it and you will use it according to your will and that you will apply it to our lives by your spirit. Father, I thank you for this congregation and I ask God that you will continue to use them in a great way for your glory and for their joy. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.